So what we see happening in the world are competing stories. And what we see happening in the United States are competing stories about who belongs. Um, you think about the Declaration of Independence, we the people. Who's that we? Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Let's Get to Work, the new podcast series from Red Up Workshop. This podcast features conversations with thought leaders and innovators who are making a difference in our communities to challenge us to think creatively and differently about the ways in which we can achieve success through employment social enterprise. This episode, as always, features Red Up's president and CEO, Carla Javits. Today, she's in conversation with John A. Powell. John is the executive director of the Haas Institute for a Fair and Inclusive Society at Berkeley, as well as holds the chancellor's chair in equity and inclusion. He's also the author of Racing to Justice, Transforming Our Conceptions of Self and Others to Build an Inclusive Society. Carla and John cover many topics, including inclusion, civic engagement, and the narratives and structures of poverty. This conversation was recorded live at Red F's offices in San Francisco, and because of that, there are some imperfections in the audio quality. But we think it's a great conversation anyway, and we do hope you enjoy it. So let's get to work. I am really thrilled to have you here, John. Thank you. It's, it's, a, it's an honor. It's a privilege. I know you speak all over. And, um, you know, just for folks here, uh, John is an internationally recognized expert in the areas of civil rights, civil liberties, race, structural racism, housing, poverty, democracy. I mean, kind of issues that are certainly very salient to the work we do. Uh, he's the executive director at the Haas Institute for Fair and Inclusive Society at Cal. And then he's got so many, he does so many things. I don't know how you do all these things at once, but he's also a professor of law and professor of African American studies and ethnic studies at Cal, taught at Harvard and Columbia. He wrote a fantastic book, Racing to Justice, and just shared with me today, which I will share out after this, a really wonderful article about poverty and kind of looking at it from you know the point of view that you've been espousing so i just i, I read as much as i could on bart it was really great uh, he also founded and directed the institute on race and poverty at the university of minnesota director of legal services in miami uh, national legal director of the aclu uh, he's also lived and worked in Africa, consulted with the governments of Mozambique and South Africa, lived in India, done work in South America and Europe. Um, there's a, another guy, I don't know if you knew him, named Greg Dees, who was really big in the social enterprise movement. And when I was reading about your background, I was thinking like around the work you do, you've had such a big influence just intellectually on so many different places. And I think, uh, you know, the impact of that, it sort of goes far beyond, obviously, the individual places you've been. But it's like, I feel like you've set out like the intellectual capital that we can then try to use as we practical, because we're more practical on the practical side, try to do our work. So I appreciate it. I refer to myself as a pracademic. A pracademic. I love that. That's a perfect. So I was watching something, and, and this I just thought this was such a beautiful introduction uh, someone made for you, John, who said, John has a brilliant mind, but he also has a shimmering heart, which I thought was just beautiful. Uh, this amazing passion that's also quiet and potent. He embraces paradox in everything he does. So I thought that was lovely. Our work is really about uh, creating jobs and support as a path to full participation in the economy, in the community, 
Um, and, you know, at root, I think it's inspired by the things you're writing about and talking about around connectivity, uh, belonging, you know, recognizing uh, the structural issues, the racism that, you know, is a challenge to so many of the people we're trying to work with who are trying to come home from incarceration and homelessness and have a, a better life for themselves and their families. Um, so this is a very practical group uh, of staff. And I think with the questions that came into me, like, I think we're, we're looking for like a deeper context idea of the context for the work that we're doing. Um, and also how we can apply some of the ideas and concepts, you know, to our work. So sure. those were, so I'm just going to ask a couple starter questions. Okay. You can take it where you want and, you know, other people will chime in. But, you know, I just wanted to start with this. So, you know, you've talked about that, like transforming the narratives and structures that are related to poverty can help break our complicity with it. I thought that was a great framework. And you've also offered, as reading today, some amazing historic examples of how, like, for example, the New Deal set up these, you know, programs uh, that offered more economic and social inclusion for whites, but sort of explicitly not for people of color. Yes. Um, so I just wondered, you know, maybe you can riff a little bit on what you mean by the narrative and structures and, you know, then any applicability we might find to our work. Oh, first of all, again, <laughs> Big question. <laughs> yeah. So narrative is sort of the, the rave right now. And uh, mm -hmm. like a lot of raves, it sort of goes off into different areas. Uh, one way of thinking about it is just um, the stories that we live by. And it's actually very simple on one hand and quite profound on the other. Just to give you an example. In terms of psychology, they say you don't have a self until you have a story. So we have a story about ourselves, about our own lives. It's a theme. And, you know, it's, it's, we sort of, as a child, we sort of doing things. Then all of a sudden, we, we start develop, developing an image of ourselves. And um, we do that at the individual level, but we also do it at a collective level. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so there's some research that suggests people can only gather and have trusting relationships with about normally about 50 people to, to 150. So if you think in terms of uh, hunter-gatherers, um, you can only have real relationships with people that you could have face-to-face -face contact with. Um, and now, though, people have relationships with thousands of people. So if you think of yourself as a Christian, or as white, or as this, it's, it's actually from a um, evolutionary perspective, it's actually a huge leap go from 50 to a thousand. So how is it that we identify across these various uh, categories? And it's actually stories. They're stories that actually hold people together. Um, and so um, it actually does a tremendous amount of work um, in terms of organizing how we see the world, organizing how we experience the world, how we experience ourselves, and how we experience those that are called the other. Mm. And oftentimes, if you look at a uh, origin story of a country. Um, there's a story about who belongs, who does not belong. In the United States, that origin story, um, which is always contested, so there's never a singular story. There are multiple stories and they're contested and they're contradictions. Uh, stories are not rational in the normal sense, mm -hmm. so it's like, aha, 
you got that wrong because this doesn't go well with that. Mm -hmm. It's like, who cares? Mm -hmm. um, and I say to my uh, students oftentimes, stories talk to the lizard brain. Mm -hmm. And the lizard brain is the oldest part of the brain. It's, it's uh, very big. It's very fast. Uh, it's, uh, and it loves stories. It hates data. You know, they're not interested. And so, um, and um, the newer part of the brain is like, I, I call like the one-year-old. It's really eloquent, but nobody listened to it, you know. Um, and <laughs> especially when things are anxious or fearful. It's like, the one-year-old's talking, the one-year-old's talking, shut up. You know, it's like, oh, we got to deal with some big problems. Um, and so, uh, right now, usually we live in stories without thinking about them. They're in the background. They're like, uh, uh, and sometimes they come to the foreground. What's happening now is that our stories are coming to the foreground because our stories that we've lived with for hundreds, if not thousands of years, in some respects, are not working. Mm -hmm. uh, and we don't necessarily have a new story. And so what we see happening in the world are competing stories. Mm -hmm. And what we see happening in the United States are competing stories about who belongs. Uh, if you think about the... Declaration of Independence, we the people. Who is that we? Mm -hmm. And at least in a lot of people's mm -hmm. mind, including the U.S. Supreme Court, in the case of uh, Dred Scott, they said blacks were not part of the we, could never be part of the we, mm -hmm. whether they were slaves or not slaves. Um, and in a sense, you could say this is the major contradiction that America is still struggling with. Mm -hmm. So, um, And we say it not just in terms of words, but we say it in terms of you know, I'm old enough to remember when they integrated swimming pools in the South. Mm -hmm. And some of you may remember, but probably most of you don't, uh, literally whites closed down the swimming mm -hmm. pools rather than share the swimming pools mm -hmm. with blacks. Mm -hmm. um, Truman pushed for universal health care in 1948, mm -hmm. and it got this close to passing. And at the last minute, the South asked the question, if we have universal health care, will we have to share facilities with blacks? And Truman said yes. And even though the South was the most dire need of health care, they said, we don't want it. We'd rather go without health care, we'd rather go without swimming pools than to be in a relationship with blacks. And part of it is that uh, the story about whiteness. Uh, you know, I sort of jokingly say sometimes, um, in many parts of many states, there's this idea that if there was one drop of black blood in you, and you were otherwise white blood, you were no longer white, you were black. And I say, you know, black blood is some powerful stuff. You know? uh, <laughs> but of course, scientists will tell us there's no such thing as black blood. So what is going on that, that there's this idea of black blood destroying whiteness? And really, it's in some ways the way whiteness as an ideology, as a story, was constructed. Uh, of exclusion, mm -hmm. of fragility, of purity. Uh, and, and in that, anytime you have purity, you also have anxiety. Because nothing's really pure. Uh, you know, you have a room of, of one thing that's pure, and this one something else outside the room enters. It's no longer pure. So purity is actually a tremendously anxiety-producing mm -hmm. concept. And that's the concept that, and there are many expressions of whiteness, but the sort of most reactive form of whiteness got organized around. And so the ideology of whiteness in some ways, not white people, uh, but the ideology mm -hmm. of whiteness as a concept is actually what's being reasserted 
uh, through Trump and others. Mm-hmm. Uh, Steve Bannon makes no he bones about, bones about it. it. Yeah. It's not subtle. It's like uh, so that we got to stop um, the pollution, mm-hmm. uh, amalgamation uh, uh, of whiteness, both in Europe and the United States. Mm-hmm. So that's the story that, he's, that some groups are selling. And then um, the groups that a lot of liberals sell is that none of this matters. Mm-hmm. Right? That, well, why, why do you have to do race or identity at all? We're just people. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we're not just people. Uh, you know, we're not even people until we have a story. And, and we may have a story of, uh, that's an inclusive story, a story with a large we, but it's not, never going to be homogeneous we or singular, a singular identity. Mm-hmm. And it, it shows up in, in thousands of ways, like, uh, you know, San Francisco, a very liberal city, is one of the most racially segregated cities mm-hmm. in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, in the 1950s and 60s, San Francisco had the largest percentage of black uh, of any major city west of the Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Now it has one of the lowest. Mm-hmm. And how did that happen? Mm-hmm. You know, so it happens through all kinds of mechanisms, not just uh, uh, Steve Bannon or Bull Connor. Mm-hmm. It happens through our policies. It happens through how we organize space. Mm-hmm. Uh, it happens through how we see people. It happens through policing. It happens through how we think about transportation. It happens through how we structure our economy. Uh, but all of these things, all these practices, are in some ways reflective and uh, perpetuating the story as well. And part of the story is that some people deserve, some people don't deserve, some people are really people. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing I'll say on this is that I think, uh, in the mind science, um, nature thought it would be kind of cool if we recognize other people, other beings of our species. Uh, so when we see someone of our species, that's actually part of the brain that lights up. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean you're going to invite mm. them to your house. It doesn't mean you're going to be friends. It doesn't mean you're going to have coffee with them. It's just like, another human, kind of cool. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, when someone is othered in a profound way, and we can measure this, so it's not mm. just uh, analytic. It's a really good research on this, empirical research. Um, certain groups are othered in a, I can say more about it if you like, in such a deep way that that part of the brain does not light up. Mm. And so uh, there's certain groups at an unconscious level that we don't see as human. And that affects uh, young African-American males. It affects homeless people. Mm. Um, and an article I sent you, I asserted that we can't really develop effective program policy for people that we don't see as human. You know, what, when I listen to you, you know, one thing that strikes me is how destructive all of this has been, both for communities of color and for the white community or the community so-called power. I mean, a great example, you know, we don't want health care, right. even though we need health care desperately, because right. we just, you know, we're too racist to right. go along with that. So it's an interesting thing. There was a, I was uh, just looking back recently, I was sharing with some folks here at some data on, you know, when people apply for jobs uh, and they they did an experiment and they found basically the, the callback rates for, uh, for whites with a felony were higher than the callback rates for a black person without a felony. Mm-hmm. And sort of said, you know, right, so right, it's right. as though right. <laughs> you have a felony just right. to be black in the United States. And of course, we're very concerned about work. Um, and I, I guess maybe this is a little bit of a, 
sort of to follow up, I think, on the narrative that you just offered. Uh, you know, this this idea, you talk a lot about this idea of like inclusion or c- connectivity or feeling like we're, we're, we are all part of something, you know, we're all human together. Um, and then you've said sometimes that uh, this idea of caring for each other for some people is a disturbance you know they don't that that just that bothers them that we should be that we should be caring for each other and maybe there's a little bit of a complicated example but i was trying to draw on some things people here had raised and you know they were thinking about and the san francisco example is really interesting um in housing in jobs in neighborhoods in schools uh, sometimes when an investment is made to try to help uh, low-income communities or communities of color, then gentrification begins. And then some of the people who are, were the target of that assistance begin to move out. And other people then take advantage of the good things instead of the, you know, the originally uh, targeted group. Um, you know, and to some extent, sort of unconscious and conscious bias plays a, plays a role in that. I think you were talking about that. But I just wondered, you know, as as we're thinking about that, you know, we're we're trying to make investments in companies that are intentionally trying to bring people in and connect people into the communities. Um, uh, I guess what can we think about to increase rather than diminish that sense of connectivity as we go about our work? You know, what what do you see? Well, there, there's a lot. Um, yeah, uh, and. In terms of stories, there's what I call bridge, bridging and breaking stories. So the bridging stories is stories that actually connect us in stories. Breaking stories is where the other, which is not just a fabric of our imagination, fabric of our stories, the other is a threat. And so we're, and the threat can be, um, you know, a benign threat in the sense of, I just don't want to be with those people, but a threat can be a deep existentialist threat. Um, mm. And so I would mm. shift what you said a little bit by saying, usually when we invest in a place, that's what we're doing. We're investing in a place, not the people. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, this is a nice place, mm-hmm. but it has all of these people who are not so nice. Mm-hmm. So wouldn't it be nice that we had, that we could clean up the tenderloin? Mm-hmm. Now we're not, when we say that, we're not saying, so the people there mm-hmm. can actually live better. Mm-hmm. We say, can we get rid of the people and make the tenderloin a really nice place? Mm-hmm. Um, I lived in New York for a number of years, and I sort of jokingly said, you know, you go to Harlem now, and they're fancy hotels, and they're, uh, you know, baby carriages with dogs in them. Uh, <laughs> I, I kid you not. And, I, Very so, and, 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 you know, and again, I lived in New York for almost 10 years, and there are police everywhere. Yeah. And the sense that you have is that the police are not there to protect the residents who've been there a long time, yes. but it's there to protect the people who are coming in. And then you even think, have things like in Cleveland, like Cleveland, Columbus, there's a, a movie called The Flag War. And it talked about how um, the sort of hip community would move, was moving into, it was actually a gay hip community, it was moving into a historically black community. Mm-hmm. And then they would call um, uh, compliance and mm-hmm. basically say, their roof is not up to code, mm-hmm. this is not up to code. And it was a strategy. They were explicit. It's like they knew the people could not uh, keep their house that, up. So right. it's like there was a realtor sort of bragging. We're going to flip this neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Right? We're going to make the neighborhood really hip. Mm-hmm. Uh, but first, they have to get rid of 
these people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we are less focused on people, mm-hmm. uh, or at least certainly the people who are we consider marginal other, and more focused on trying to make a place nice. Mm-hmm. Now, in terms of actually trying to actually have a neighborhood or a space that's really uh, inclusive, yeah. and, uh, it's actually, from a policy perspective, it's actually not very hard. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and in, in terms of housing, the housing crisis is, is uh, first of all, a credit crisis, but secondly, it's not really that hard to solve. I mean, for example, here in the Bay Area, um, there's something called Fair Share, which comes out of New Jersey. Uh, and New Jersey did this 40 years ago, and I was involved in it. And they basically said, under the New Jersey Constitution, every municipality has to build its fair share of affordable housing. But like most legislation, there was some compromise. So the compromise was, uh, if you didn't want to build it in your community, you could give another community the money and they could build it in their community. Mm-hmm. So what ended up happening, um, units got built, but the more well-heeled ne- neighborhoods mm-hmm. was paying Newark and Camden to build Before more them. units mm-hmm. in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and I've, I've written about what I call opportunity-based communities, mm-hmm. and I was involved in that case 40 years ago. Uh, and we finally yeah. got that removed. We finally got mm-hmm. the... Uh, and so now there's no exception, but there's a, it was a, it's not stable because there's a pitch fight, you know, it's like, we don't really want, you know, it's not appropriate for having, uh, every neighborhood to have a fair share. Same thing in Montgomery County. Montgomery County has a, uh, not only a fair share rule, Montgomery County says you have to build, uh, housing, uh, a certain percentage of it has to be affordable, a certain percentage have to be eligible people in public housing. And the external uh, external facade of the house has to be consistent. Mm. So you can't walk down the street and say, "Oh, there's the public housing," or "Oh, there's the subsidized housing." It looks all the housing looks alike. Uh, and this has been going on again for forty years. And when people people have written about it and all kind of studies, mm. the, not only do the families do better in mm. terms of work, in terms of income, in terms of health, um, mm. but also the children do much better mm. in terms of schools, in terms of performance, and it's racially and economically relatively integrated. And Montgomery County is the excuse me, third richest county in the United States. Mm. Uh, so it's not that hard, right? Yeah. It's like, uh, so what is, what's happened is that when some states saw that, states start passing laws saying to cities, you can't have inclusionary zoning. Mm. We're going to preempt you from actually making policies to actually include people. Mm. Um, and, you know, things always have what they call unintended consequences. But in terms of a policy, there are just so many relatively straightforward ways to address these issues. Uh, and mm-hmm. the one that I am making reference to in a sense is that I, I support things like uh, land banks and, and uh, obviously there's a debate about rent control and all that, uh, but trying to keep people in the homes. But if we say California has is short about between two to five million units of housing, two million units short, right. uh, as you know, because probably better than I, uh, Los Angeles is building units like crazy, including low-income units, and yet the homelessness rate is going up. They can't keep up, right? Uh, so the government's trying to do something, but in a way, what's happened is that you have the government action over here, and you have the market, 
And what, what New Jersey did, and to some extent Montgomery County, is they said, we're going to make the market work for us. Mm-hmm. New Jersey puts no money, mm-hmm. the government puts no money into its housing plan. Mm-hmm. He said, uh, it says, they just set the, the ground rules for building housing. Mm-hmm. And then they said, the market, you want to build housing? Uh, or a city, you want to build housing, you have to do it this way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we don't tax people and whatever. Mm-hmm. So there's so many ways to do it uh, if we were serious about it. Uh, and I mean, I say use we advisedly because I know you are serious about it. Um, we have all these reasons why it can't be done. Like you can't interfere with the market, you can't do this, you can't do that. Um, and, and like I said, if you look at what's happened in the last 25 years or so, there have been more policies and laws passing to make to make the effort harder, not easier. So in, for, in the face of a crisis, let's pass laws that make things much harder. So, so part of that is the story. Right? That, I mean, when people oppose uh, affordable housing, it's always there's going to be more traffic, there's going to be um, more crime, there's going to be, uh, and a lot of those assertions have just proved to be patently mm-hmm. wrong. In fact, there was a, a documentary, um, and if, if you want, I can try to send it to you, but um, one of the major networks, they followed, it was an area where blacks were moving in, and whites start leaving first and, and start withdrawing from the public space, stop going to the shopping center and all that. And um, you wouldn't ask people why they were doing this, why they were leaving. And uh, and they said, well, you know, crime has gone up and the schools, they used to be really good. Now they're not as good. It was actually just the opposite. Mm-hmm. Uh, crime actually went down. The schools right. were better. Uh, in, in this particular instance, um, it was actually middle class blacks moving in, mm. so the value for mm. a short period of time went up. Uh, but people still had this perception. So even though, in terms of uh, "quote unquote" objective measures, uh, things were okay in terms of the stories that whites were telling each other. It's like what you're saying, right? It's mm-hmm. like you know, it's scary to see so many blacks in mm-hmm. the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. There must be something wrong with the neighborhood. Yeah. One of my favorite stories when I used to work on housing was always, it was here in the city, you know, and we would show like, uh, you know, we'd get all these fights with neighbors to build, you know, a single apartment building for people who had been homeless. But we always like to show like the apartment building and then the place next door and how its uh, property value also had skyrocketed. There was no change or diminution in that just because a supportive housing project was next door they still did just as well in fact better because it was sort of more secure more safe so but i think you know at the at the root of i think a lot of what you talk about and and i um, this feels right to me you know we we think like the work we do seems so obvious i mean if we want you know people to not continually go back to prison or to homelessness or to these you know terrible uh, conditions. Uh, clearly, one thing we want is for people to be uh, able to support themselves and their families. But, you know, so why doesn't, why isn't this just universally happening? We've shown how it can be done. As you said, we know how to do these things, but we don't do them uh, because uh, of these fears, of the other, or, you know, not seeing other people as human and the stories we tell ourselves and, and all of this. And um, I guess I wonder, and I think, you know, for people here, I I think many of us who have been working on these things for a long time, and I would imagine you've been giving this some thought, you know, it's such a a difficult moment 
you know, it feels like, uh, you know, sometimes in, in times in the U.S. we feel like at least we're making some progress and forward motion. And boy, right now it seems like a tsunami of, of uh, the othering is, you know, going on. Uh, so I just wonder, you know, for people who are here, just how you're thinking about it, how you're keeping your spirit uh, alive. Um, I mean, I know for me, I'm seeing some of the younger people who are running for office around the country, and just so inspired by that. People who are clear about what needs to happen and are really out there in the public square talking about it. People do seem more civically involved, so those those seem like good things. But I just wonder how you, yeah. you know, how do people, how do we keep our spirits going in yeah, such a tough time? It's an interesting question, So, and, and I'm, I'm not a good subject matter for that in the sense that <laughs> I don't organize around hope. Most people do. Yeah. I don't organize around despair. Mm-hmm. I think I organize around engagement. Um, mm. You know, we, we engage in life. We don't know how it's going to turn out. It's like, it's like it's, you know, using a sports metaphor, it's like, there's a game, you know. Yeah, I don't know on. if I'm going to win or lose, yeah. but if I don't shoot the ball, I'm not going to score. Exactly. If I shoot the ball, it's not going to always go in. Yeah. But if I don't shoot the ball, I know it's not going in. So it's like be engaged. And being Great. engaged to me is actually an existentialist and spiritual dimension as well because that's what we are as humans. We're social beings, and our humanity actually uh, is, is developed through our engagement. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what you're talking about, it's, it's quite important. That's why I talk about othering is the problem of the 21st century. And it's not just a U.S. problem, it's a global problem. Mm-hmm. And it's like, so what's, what's going on in the world that's causing not just othering to go on, although that's, I think, the root of it in many ways, um, but also um, many things that we had thought we'd reached agreement on. Mm-hmm. Democracy, mm-hmm. rule of law. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you know, people forget, like, the, the crisis that just happened at the border with um, the self-inflicted with the children. Um, people cop- people talk about, well, immigrants, you know, people shouldn't just be coming to this country. The United States has, has signed a dozen treaties mm. around refugees. Mm. They were refugees, not immigrants, and people couldn't distinguish. All, all they really were saying is that they were foreign. They don't belong here. And these were kids, mm-hmm. as well as adults. Uh, now, when I say people, I also want to clarify the country is, is actually is going to be going like this whiplash so there there are people who are very much engaged in trying to live into a larger and deeper we um, that's not just true in the United States it's true in, in England so you look at Ridex you know people if you live in London uh, metropolitan London 20 million people very much wanted to stay part of the EU mm. uh, but then mm. the majority of people who voted very much did not. So, so it's not even so. There's a heterogeneity in, among every group, you know, whether it's whites or blacks or Latinos or gays. Um, and um, but I, I think what there's missing in some respects, especially for those who believe the need for an expanded we. And I'll just say two things about this. I say the the problem of othering. Or the, the solution to othering is not saming, mm-hmm. which again I think what mm-hmm. liberals tend to do is like, oh, Muslims are just like Christians, mm-hmm. are just like mm-hmm. you know Jews, are just mm-hmm. like Buddhists. I said, well, yes and no. I mean, it's, it's so it's not you know, mm-hmm. one way it's like, so the whole fight around gay marriage. One of the big arguments was that gays are just like 
heterosexuals, you know. Okay, so they do love a little differently, but you know, other than that, it's going to be gay marriage and heterosexual marriage exactly the same. Mm. You know, they're going to be just as unhappy as the rest of us. <laughs> uh, and the early literature says, no, that's not true. That not only is it not the same, that the, uh, to some extent, the conservatives who worry that gay marriage was going to change the institution of marriage was right. The fact that it was going to destroy the institution of marriage, they were wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, so part of it is sort of mm. stepping into a change that's positive. Mm. So part of the thing that's happening in the world is um, humans, all mammals, can only process so much change in a short period of time. And what we're experiencing is rapid change across multiple dimensions. Um, uh, and you can, and some of them we are more aware of than others. So technology. Uh, technology is like speeding up and you know Moore's law every two years every two and a half years it doubles it means our lives are so different uh, so technology I mean drive around the Bay Area and this, this sign saying uh, if you don't want if you retire then a robot can't take your job mm-hmm. you know sort of play on words but it's also speaking to there's that underlying anxiety it's like what am I going to be doing in 20 mm-hmm. years am I safe from this uh, you know rapidly expanding uh, technology revolution is happening. So there's technology, there's globalization. Um, you know, mm-hmm. we are a, a global world now. And, and, you know, look at half the stuff in your house is not made in the United States. And even if it's made in the United States, the supply chain is not entirely the United States, even your phone. So it's like we're in a different space. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and then climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the rapid, you know, it used to be that every... Uh, five or ten years to be a major fire in California. Now it's like every year, mm-hmm. uh, and it doesn't even wait for fire season. Mm-hmm. And so the you know the, the change in the environment is, is is real, and it's even if we cover our eyes and say no, even if we refuse to say the word, which as you know Trump has told EPA they can't use the word climate change. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like okay that that fixed the problem. <laughs> <We're> all, <laughs> everything's better now. <laughs> uh, about yeah, exactly. And then the last one is the changing demographics. Mm-hmm. And uh, the demographics are changing fast. Mm-hmm. They're changing th- throughout the world. It raises questions as to whether or not we can have really a multiracial, multiethnic, multireligious democracy and what it looks like. And we've never really, as a world, mm-hmm. we've never had to deal with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you think of, it's not mm-hmm. just the United States. The United States had what some people call a racial dictatorship. So it's great if you're the in-group, but the in-group was always relatively mm-hmm. restricted. Um, not so great mm-hmm. if you're not in the in-group. And oftentimes, mm-hmm. the out-group is larger than the in-group. Mm-hmm. There was also a trend in terms of Europe. So Europe you know, talks about its homogeneity, and so it didn't have the problems of the United States. It had colonies, mm-hmm. you know, in Africa and Latin America. So it's like, okay, we can, you know, for the people here, we're extracting stuff from, uh, you know, Latin America and Asia and, and, and Africa so we can have this really nice life and then those people start showing up mm-hmm. in Europe uh, and all of a sudden the question of um, Putnam wrote about this in the 90s he said it was going to put the welfare state in Europe to test yeah. as Europe became mm-hmm. more diverse and I should hasten to add and I'll stop but diversity is actually a funny word mm-hmm. because um, mm-hmm. Emeritus Sand, a Nobel economist from India he makes the observation that there's, there's, in a sense, there's always diversity, and, and homogeneity, homogeneity, is a constructed concept. Mm-hmm. 
you, I mean, so take any group, mm-hmm. and okay, now it's like think about the development of the EU. The EU, there are a couple of things that really push the development of the EU, and one of the most important things was that in a, in a period of 40 to 50 years, there were three major wars, including two world wars, where people who ostensibly we would all say it's white were at each other's throat trying to kill each other. Mm-hmm. It's like, and when I was a kid, I, this used to confuse me, right? When I was like, <laughs> grew up in Detroit and I sort of understood things in black and white terms, like, but they're all white. <laughs> <laughs> are they killing each other? Why are they killing each other? It's like, no, Germans don't think the French are, you know, yeah. and certainly in the 1930s, they didn't think they were the same people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the worst genocide in modern history uh, was uh, Rwanda. And the people there mm-hmm. were the same race, mm-hmm. the same ethnicity, the same religion, mm-hmm. same language. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, well, are they homogeneous? It depends. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can cut, slice this thing a thousand different ways. And the deciding difference, the thing that actually separated the two groups, was how many cows you had. Mm-hmm. Uh, so from an outside perspective, it's like, oh, they're all the same. It's interesting. I, I was telling someone at some point that I, a few years ago that San Francisco is one of the most, diverse, most diverse cities in the United States. And I said, it's not true. Uh, and uh, and and then uh, they say, you know, there are whites, blacks, and Asians, and sprinkling of Latinos, but it's not very diverse. And and I said, but the uh, Asian community in San Francisco is extremely diverse. Mm-hmm. Isn't it? Oh, you think an Asian is diverse? In other words, they were saying all Asians yeah. are the same. Yeah. Uh, I said, in fact, China is a very diverse country. Mm-hmm. They're not, you know, mm-hmm. China, and, and, and they've had special laws to have affirmative action mm-hmm. in China when they had the one, mm-hmm. uh, one child policy. Mm-hmm. The uh, people who were not Hun, which mm-hmm. is the dominant ethnic group, mm-hmm. uh, were spared from the policy. But from us in the United States, they're all the same. Mm-hmm. So the idea of sameness or heterogeneity, excuse me, homogeneity, is also a fiction, but the the, the um, and the last thing I'll say is that what's called into question by this rapid change that we can't really go back on is making not only new stories and a larger we, but new institutions. Mm. Institutions that institutions are actually always in relationship to problems and stories, uh, and the institutions that we just why got the EU. A new institution to try to bring together mm-hmm. a new European identity that halfway work. So half the Brits think of themselves as European, mm-hmm. half of them don't. Mm-hmm. There's the fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, and the European identity is a constructed identity. Uh, but all identities are constructed. So can we actually forge new stories, mm-hmm. but also not just stories, new institutions and practices and policies mm-hmm. uh, that reflect those stories, uh, which allow all of us to really um, belong. Please, everybody, join me. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Let's Get to Work. To access all of our content and resources to help you grow your business and increase the impact of your employment social enterprise, head over to redfworkshop.org. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider leaving us a rating and subscribing. They'll help new listeners discover the show. Stay tuned for a new episode next month. Until then, thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.